Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast, sponsored by the Athena Advisors. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to reflect, debate, and have a bit of a schmooze. This week I'm delighted to welcome the comedian, best-selling author of Jews Don't Count, and Jewish Chronicle columnist David Badil. We'll be talking about his new book, The God Desire, which is out now, published by TLS. In The God Desire, David writes, I love God, the idea, that is, of him. Who would not love a superhero dad who chases off death? David Badil, let's talk. Uh, thank you, Jake. And thank you for coming into the office. You said My pleasure. Possibly one of, one of the most Jewish things you've ever said to me, and there have been a lot, mm. uh, was that you'll come into the office for the podcast if there's food. Yeah, I did say that. Uh, well, we're having it at lunchtime. We're recording this at lunchtime. So my first thought really was, well, I will faint. I'll get low blood sugar <laughs> if they don't provide me with food. I sort of rather hope that there might be a huge, incredible kosher spread. There's sushi, which is kind of Jewish. It's, it's kosher adjacent. Yeah, it's kosher adjacent. <laughs> uh, I haven't said a bracha, but I'm happy. I'm happy with the food. Thank you very much. I mean, actually, it's my second meal on, as it were, Jewish funding today. Right. Uh, because rather remarkably, I got a, an email from Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the Anti-Defamation League last week. Hmm. He said, I'm in London. Do you want to meet up? And I said, yeah, right. And the next thing I knew, his assistant was getting in touch with my assistant saying he can only do seven o'clock right, in, the, in morning, the morning. In the morning, right? And I'm not... That's not a Jewish time. Yeah, I'm not good before about nine. Yeah. Um, and I want the assistant to say no. And then I discovered quite Jewishly, he was staying at the Marriott in Swiss Cottage, okay. which is not very far from me. And then my next thought was... I like a full English breakfast. So you may know this about me. I love a full right. English breakfast. Yeah. yeah, I can tell you from many, many hotels that the Marriott's is very good. Then I think he was quite taken aback because we then went to the buffet and I said, would you eat any of this? And he did say, no, I would never eat anything that trafe. <laughs> <laughs> 
So he was being, you know, that ADL hat on there. Um, <laughs> and, but I carried on eating it. I didn't bother me. Right. Right. At one point, a blackberry or a blueberry from his fruit platter no. landed on my plate. Right. Just, and I said, I'll just eat that. And he said, well, you should eat something healthy. <laughs> <laughs> something kosher. Yeah. He's, a, he's a funny guy, actually. He's a funny kind of quite wise cracking New York guy. Yeah. My previous conversation with him is, is one of my, I'm going to say, kind of proudest achievements. You know, I like to think that Jews don't count shifted the dial a bit on the conversation mm. around Jewish identity and representation and anti-Semitism. And one of the key moments for that was after Whoopi Goldberg said, I think about the Holocaust not being about race, I went on Good Morning Britain and I talked about how, you know, I'm an atheist, but the Nazis would kill me immediately. So therefore, it's clearly not religious intolerance. So therefore, it must be about race. And I talked, obviously, out loud, uh, and that went a bit viral. And then, this is a bit name-droppy, but hey, Sasha Baron Cohen gave... Jonathan Greenblatt, my number, because he watched that. And he phoned me up, Jonathan, and said, can you explain that again in a bit more detail? And I explained again how anti-Semitism is racism and the various ways in which it has to be seen as racism and the importance of that. And on their website, that is not a word they use or had not been a word they use, and they changed it the next day. Really? So now the ADL does define anti-Semitism as racism, and that's a direct consequence I mean, that, of that. I mean, the brilliant thing about Jews don't count, uh, I mean, there's lots of brilliant things about it, but the most brilliant is just that phrase, Jews don't count, because we talked about this before, that it gave people a way of describing something they previously felt and knew but couldn't articulate simply. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I hear that all the time. In fact, I heard it from Jonathan Greenblatt this morning, <laughs> but I hear it all the time. Uh, from both British and American Jews, and actually the book. Sorry, I just burped. The book's just been sold in Brazil. Whether it's for a bacon large, burp? Yes, no, no, that's a sushi burp. Uh, where uh, the book's just been sold in Brazil? Where there's a, who knew? I didn't know this. There's a large Jewish community, and that's because I do think it speaks to Jews uh, over many different sort of you know national cultures mm. about this specific and weird type of exclusion that's happened over the last sort of 20, 30 years where there's a sense of like, you know, we don't have to worry about Jews. Jews are fine. Mm. Jews are rich and powerful and privileged, white. And and also we've sort of got other stuff to worry about now, which in some ways is true. I mean, there are different minorities that have emerged in the last 20 years who do need, there are concerns. But the idea that <laughs> any minority, not just us, but any minority should therefore is no longer a cause for concern is obviously mm. wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously deeply ahistorical to imagine, yeah. well, anti-Semitism's all over now, because it, it really isn't. And did you find, so with your new book, The God yeah. Desire, which we're talking about today, yes. was there a sense from Jewish readers that having really taken a stand and defended the Jewish community, the Jews don't count, you're now, in a, in a way, attacking the Jewish community by... With the God desire? No, not at all. I mean, not, I'm not get. I don't really have a sense of that. It, I think it got a bad review at the Jewish Chronicle from Howard Cooper, who has since we have had some email conversations since. Uh, but he's a rabbi. I tend to get bad reviews in the newspaper that I write for, and I'm now doing a podcast for because I believe Jews don't count. Got a fucking stinker, which is sort of unbelievable, really. Uh, it's partly because Jews, I think, are defensive about Jewishness and like, like who. They don't like the idea that X or Y, anyone might be speaking for all Jews. And because Jews don't count, certainly for a while, felt like it was that. Mm. That might have ruffled some feathers. But with this one, I've had a couple of sort of things about the theology, because it's sort of a work of theology in some ways. But not really, because I think that you, you also did publish, who was it by, sorry, um, that sort of nice piece about it. By oh, yes, Jonathan, by Jonathan, Jonathan um, Remain. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan so Jonathan Remain, Remain wrote a piece, yeah. which, and he's a rabbi as well. 
which was kind of about how the or the Orthodox or the more from community needs to understand that mm. Jewish atheism or certainly Jewish non-observance is a big feature of the and community. Actually, even in, in your book, you talk about how Judaism is about how you live. Orthodox Judaism is about rules. It's about when you get up. It's about what yeah. you say when you're putting on your yeah. tefillin or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes belief can take a back seat to the doing. Well, that's how I perceive it. And I did go to a very orthodox Jewish primary school. I sort of do know whereof I speak because I wore sitzit mm. and a yarmulke and I had to say blessings for every meal until I was 11. So I do know... Can you still do them? I, I do know. Well, I do occasionally. Uh, and the other day, an extraordinary thing happened the other day. Uh, this is my life. So I did the Oxford Union uh, and I was talking about the God Desire uh, and a bit about Jews Don't Count. And, uh, and it was a Friday night. Uh, I'm sorry, it was a Friday night. <laughs> That's what they wanted because it's a good gig to do on a Friday night. Uh, they get more people. And then there was one Orthodox, young Orthodox Jewish student there. And he said to me afterwards, his name is Oliver Goldstein, he said to me, there's a Chabad happening right now. All those people would love to see you. I don't know if they really would, but that's what he thought. They couldn't come tonight because it's Friday, come to Chabad. And I thought, I don't want to do that at all because I've just spoken for an hour it was quite an exhausting thing. It was really hot. Yeah. went well, but, you know, these things are not that easy to do. And I thought, oh, I can't face it. But I felt guilty. Right. So I went. And there was another thing. What would you believe? Food. Right. right. He said the food's really good. I know the Chabad in Oxford. They're very, they're very welcoming. I'll be honest. Rabbi Eli. Yeah. The food's incredible. Right. So I go there. Rabbi Eli and his wife and his seven children yeah. and, and everyone else. So there's about 40 people there at Chabad around at a massive table. Uh, and I sit down and I'm thinking, oh, God, this is, you know, going to be complicated because of my atheism and whatever else. It was absolutely lovely. Unbelievably lovely. Food was incredible. I mean, maybe the best yeah. kosher food I've ever yeah. tasted, all made by the rabbi's wife. Did he the, show you that? The, the rabbi did a lovely yeah. speech. Yeah. I mean, really yeah. a lovely speech about me, about me being a warrior for the Jewish community and all that. And then we had many conversations with this guy, Oliver Goldstein, who is a computer scientist and a philosopher. He's 27, mm. about truth and God and atheism. And it became very Talmudic. Two hours later, having thought I'd be there five minutes, I'm basically thinking, I'm home, aren't I? I'm home. <laughs> I can feel my roots absolutely within me. I, to answer your question, to answer your question, that kind of experience makes me feel like not at all. That the discussion of what God is and what truth is and what Jewishness is, which the book is all about, is part of the culture of Judaism, even if the starting point of the book obviously is that God doesn't exist. Did you see the um, in, in the Chabad in Oxford, Uri Geller's name on the wall? Did mm. you see that? Did you tell you the story about that? It's funny, isn't it? He did. He told me that Yuri Geller, sorry, I'm eating, ladies and gentlemen. Yuri <laughs> Geller had, had come after doing a talk at Northford Union and that he'd written his name uh, on the wall yeah. um, and that when he came, the, the picture fell off or something. Hang on, yeah. no, I'm not telling this story. Quite, I'm trying to so, reverse. Yeah. Uh, so that mo the morning he was going to come, the picture of the Rebbe suddenly mysteriously fell off the wall. Right. And that evening, Uri Geller turns up and then suddenly springs up with a light in his eyes, crosses the room and writes his name on the spot in which the picture used to hang. And, okay. the, and the, that's the story. Yeah, there's nothing magic about that, though, is there? He just wrote his name on the wall. But he did it in an inspired, you know, I mean, come on. Yeah, no, you know This what? is why you're an atheist, dude. This is why I'm an atheist, <laughs> because Yuri Geller just saw a bit of the wall that was blank <laughs> and that normally, you know, probably was even like, you know, there's a square there because there's something. It's all in the that, story, though, isn't it? I guess so. I mean, actually, to be fair to Yuri, he was on fantasy football. Mm. He did two things. One was the Dutch defenders, Reddy and Willy van der Kerkhoff. He got them to draw a picture and one of them drew one picture and the other one drew exactly the same picture. And somehow Yuri masterminded that. And the other was in the dressing room, he bent my key. That sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> but I mean, he bent my front door key and, right. and I couldn't get into my house that night. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. 
And Frank Skinner has always said, you're supposed to be a bloody atheist. You're supposed to not believe God. I was with you outside the house saying, look at the magic that you've done to my key. Wow. Anyway, about God. Yeah, about God. You know, I wrote Jews Don't Count and I was asked to write another one. I mean, you know, and I'm very lucky because it's a little brand I seem to have established for these sort of essay books. And I say I'm lucky because, like, they don't take that long to write because they're quite short. Um, and and so what they try and do, I think, is drill down into a specific part of a bigger discussion. So obviously anti-Semitism is a very big discussion, but I'm talking about a very specific corner of it. In this, I'm not talking about the whole waterfront of atheism and religion with massive. I'm talking specifically about a sort of personal thing, really, which is if you ask me why I don't believe in God, although I accept there is no evidence for God, it's like a crime. God is like a crime for which there is no evidence, but enormous amounts of motivation. And that's the point, is I feel the motivation. And the motivation is... We are frightened of death. We are frightened of the dying of our loved ones. We are frightened of meaningless. We are frightened that the world has no justice in it. Uh, we think that we live in kind of, we may live in kind of terrible chaos and are insignificant and unimportant. So what do we do? We create a thing that makes all those worries go away and, and that is a witness and a super parent and, and all those things. And I want those things as much as anyone. That book is written not from the kind of slightly, I think, usual atheist point of view which is it's all nonsense like and why would anyone believe in these terrible fairy tales I mean, at one point i say to say that religion is fairy tales is to misunderstand fairy tales because fairy tales tell us a lot about what it means to be human uh, and also because i'm jewish and so as a jew i know that religion even if you don't believe in the existence of the supernatural being who is at the core of it is still part of your identity and in a way, the argument that you make is that the fact that we desire God so much belies the fact that he doesn't exist. Well, it trips me into thinking he doesn't exist, because at heart, what I think is anything so deeply wished for must be a fantasy. But we deeply wish for things that are not fantasies as well. Yes, you make but, this point in the book. But right? at that point, it was actually Jonathan Safran Fur, um, who, when I was filming Jews Don't Count, I told him this argument, he said, but things that we wish for can exist. So I had to slightly modify the the argument and and... It's possibly flawed in terms of the pure like logic of it, but I bring in, having said I'm not interested in evidence, I bring in evidence at that point and mm -hmm. say the things that we wish for that might exist, food, sex, money, they clearly exist and sometimes we wish for them and they happen. And that, that can obviously happen. Mm -hmm. However, this is a thing that there is no existential evidence for no one has ever in any way know, i think the phrase used no concrete experience i mean some people yeah. say that they do have concrete experience no, but I, I don't, do i use concrete experience I, I say i think i say evidential experience uh is what i mean by i say that you know there is no nothing that you can logically in terms of data or anything else say that god exists i, I mean actually in terms of like the experience that Later on, I think, I say there's no point trying to argue using logic and reason for God because God is beyond logic and reason. I think something was in my mind then, which I don't say in the book, even though he appears lots of other places. is something Frank Skinner once said to me, who's a devout Catholic, which is that sometimes when he takes communion, he feels the presence of God. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that is a brilliant argument. It's not really an argument. It's an existential reason to believe in God. And I have no problem with that, or at least I have no argument against it. Have because you never told it yourself? No. Never? Never. Absolutely never. And I know I never will. And as I think I wrote in the paper the other day, since this book has come out, a few people have slightly misunderstood it and think that The God Desire is a book about me. Uh, well, it is a book about me wanting to believe in God, but it's using that want to talk about the non-existence. Hence uh, the Bible through the post. Yeah. Loads of Bibles, loads of Qurans, two Qurans, um, <laughs> and, and just letters from people saying, I can help you with this. Right. Uh, 
But I, I absolutely know 100%. And as I think I talk in the book about deathbeds, deathbed conversions. Yeah. They're a particular site in the sort of atheist versus believers battle. And people try and claim, oh, Tom Paine converted on his deathbed. Or similarly, Nick Cohen writes a big article about how uh, Christopher Hitchens didn't, uh, you know, pray to God. And who cares? Because on your deathbed, you're frightened. And if you say, God help me on my, on my deathbed, that doesn't mean God exists or even that you believe God exists. It means that you're frightened. Let's talk about Christopher Hitchens briefly, because the, the new atheists made a big splash in the 2010s. And that was when everybody was obsessing about this. And there was a mm. huge row. There was Dawkins, there was Hitchens, there was Sam Harris. And Hitchens in particular stands out, partly because of his Jewish heritage. But Does he have Jewish heritage? He does have Jewish heritage. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I thought yeah. he was, because he doesn't talk about being an altar boy. It's Jewish heritage with a kind of you know, in a small way, but it's but it's there enough to be there. Okay. He, he's Jewish right. enough for us. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, know, I know what that's like. Yeah, and uh, and he, I mean, the the refrain that he kept coming back to in his book, "God is not great," is "Religion is poison." In Hitchens, in Hitchens, yeah, and that's very much not right. your approach at all. It, it, your your book is much more, much warmer, much kinder, and much less pugilistic than the new atheists were, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, there's a specific reason for that, which is, well, there's two reasons. One is halfway through the book, um, and in probably the most kind of abstruse section, I try and disentangle Judaism from atheism. And I sort of come to the conclusion that as a Jew and the sort of Jew I am, I can't completely disentangle it. And I, there's a, I think, moving bit where I talk about hearing the Kaddish read a friend of mine's funeral yeah. whose son had died and saying, you know, that the Hebrew, whatever the words mean, which in English feel to me like they are kind of nonsense, in, in a Hebrew beyond does beyond meaning beyond meaning conveys a kind of sonic pain which i absolutely respond to and those things are not available i think unless you're a member of a religious minority but i think um the other thing uh that's different is that dawkins and hitchens and all the rest of them are talking about organized religion and i actually sort of agree with them mainly about organized religion or certainly about the way that you know authoritarian elements create in the church or in other forms of you know organized religion uh, structures of power that have been extremely terrible over many centuries i'm just not talking about this in this small book i'm talking about the desire for god and how it works within me and what it tells me i think about the universe and i expostulate that in various ways but i'm sort of not talking about whether that means religion is good or bad Mm. what should come across and why i think you think it's warm is i am writing from a point of understanding that desire and feeling that desire and so therefore placing myself in a communion with believers even though i don't believe were i to go on and write about the distortions that desire has created once institutional power gets involved i'd probably be sitting with dawkins and hitchens but right. just, the book's just not about that and i mean that it's interesting you mentioned that part about being moved by kadesh the prayer for the dead because that really struck me that that passage and in it you basically argue that even though you don't believe in god you would still end up saying the kadesh if someone who was close to you died well, i have done and you, my ha- dad. you have done my in dad fact did. you have done yeah um, my dad and my mum. Because it speaks to you of, of Jewish survival, I think you said, in some yeah, way. Yeah, well, I say traditions of survival and defi- I mean, I think this is all very key. And maybe I haven't made it clear enough um, in the in the book is that I think, I mean, I actually think it, you know, when you write a book and then you, particularly with this subject, you have thoughts, and you know, oh, I should have put that in the book. And one is like we talked earlier about Judaism being this um, codified system of rules and regulations. Mm. And I think that's very interesting because I think that it doesn't have, as far as I'm aware, this kind of narrative art, which I think is very successful in Christianity, towards reward in the hereafter. 
And I think, why is that? And I'll tell you why I think it is. I think it's because if you're from a very persecuted minority, what you want psychologically is a religion that offers you immediate kind of sense of safety. And in a slightly OCD way, I think all these little rules and regulations make you feel, oh, I might be okay if I just do this. In the next kind of minute, I might be okay. So it's a control in some way. It's a control thing. And I can sort of prove this because Shalom Auslander, who wrote Forcing His Lament, told me that when he left his um, Orthodox community in Monzi, and became you know, non-religious, he thought something terrible was going to happen to him all the time. He still does, I think. Oh, yeah, I think he still does. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know he's a bit like that. Yeah. But I think that's because you get a shield of sort of safety, of anxiety diversion from tefillin and brachas and whatever else it might be. And I think that's due to being a persecuted minority. And I'm not sure, I mean, certainly like say, I mean, Catholics can feel it because they are a persecuted minority or certainly have been in this country. But I'm not sure that Anglicans can ever feel what it's like because as we know if like to be an atheist anglican is kind of pointless isn't it it's pointless do you know why it's pointless because they're all atheists no not because they're all atheists because they're not persecuted i mean at the absolute heart of it and it's quite depressive this i suppose you might say is if you ask me what it means to be an atheist jew and i do like all the traditions i like kaddish and i like all sorts of things about about it but at heart it's about anti-semitism it's a heart. It is about knowing that the fact that I don't believe in God and that I don't keep kosher and I don't go to synagogue would not protect me from being put on a cattle truck. And so that means I have no choice but to be a Jew. That is something that Anglicans will never understand. There is a, a, a Christian parallel in your book, though, isn't there? When you talk about that painting of Christ where he's extremely agonized. I forget, sorry, the, the, the name of the painter. but uh, It's the Grunewald, um, Grunewald Altar. That's the one, and yeah. and it's, it's on, I mean, his hands are contorted. And he yeah, really it's a very, very extreme and very painful image of Jesus on the cross. And it was and it was placed in position for sufferers of this awful ergotism that, yeah. that caused their limbs to auto auto. Yeah, it's all very medieval to drop so, off. Well, I use it very specifically. Auto amputate was the word, and so they're yeah. in pain. And this painting was to inspire them in their pain. Yeah. Um, so in a way, it speaks a little. It's a parallel to the Jewish experience. If it, if belief comes from pain, from suffering, from persecution, in a similar way, yeah. there's that religious instinct. No, I, I'm, obviously, religion always provides that. I just think that the bittiness of Judaism is about a more immediate sense of persecution, an immediate sense of anxiety. Whereas Christianity, I think, is about a sort of more longer term thing. I, This is just a theory I have, and it might be wrong, but that creates a sense in me that the sort of immediate sense that your life is under threat. Is is sort of in in a way minimised by all the stuff you have to do as as Orthodox Jews. Whereas for Christians, even though their lives were obviously shit and terrible, more of a long term type of a shit. And in the long term, you're, it's going to be better because it's better off death. Mm. I mean that particular moment, which I've had a little bit of comeback uh, to, but not that much. Although I did meet his widow the other day. Uh, I don't know if she's read the book, um, but a it's about a Gill. Yes, uh, and a Gill was a believer. Uh, and kind of complicated man for me because he used to write mainly really, really horrible stuff about me on TV. Um, but I met him a few times and we started to sort of put that behind us. Maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, and and then we were around a dinner table once and he started asking me about whether I believed in God and how much of a Jew I was. And I think I, that was one of the first times that I said this thing about like, well, actually, I don't believe in God because I know how much I want God to exist. And it suggests to me that he doesn't. And he said, oh, that's so Jewish. I want it so it can't be true. And that's interesting, I think, because is it Jewish? And I say in the book, 
Maybe it's depressive. I don't know if it's Jewish. Anyway, hmm. I then talk about this particular, he talked to me about this particular image of Christ. And what I said to you before about Frank, about like Egil felt God when he looked at this. And that's why he believes in God and it felt very real to him. And then what I point out is that Egil was trying to come off drink at the time. He was a massive alcoholic. He had the DTs. He was in enormous pain from that. And the image of the ergotism Jesus suffering intensely designed to reflect a terrible illness that's similar to the DTs, what it does is it gives your pain gravitas, weight, significance, and all the things you want. He's being serviced by the God desire because God does that. It makes you feel like things like pain, which can feel like random and horrible and pointless, they have a point Hmm. because God is sharing it with you. And that makes you feel important and significant and comforted. I felt a bit bad about this because he's dead and he can't answer back. But in the end, uh, I then go on to say, well, he's dead and I don't believe in afterlife. So he's not going to be... Are you talking about Jesus or... Jesus (laughs) Jesus lives, obviously. (laughs) And now a quick word about our sponsor, the Athena Advisors. They are a global consulting firm driven by a belief in social justice, helping charities and NGOs to repair the world through excellence in fundraising. Board of trustees, executive teams and philanthropists turn to the Athena Advisors to help them develop their capabilities, systems and skills for more effective fundraising. With hubs in London and Washington and a diverse team of professionals on four continents, they help organisations ramp up their impact and reach. To find out more about how the Athena Advisors drive organisational performance for good, visit theathenaadvisors.com. Can I just say one thing, actually, which I have said to, um, I've said, I think, uh, on Twitter, but when uh, Howard Cooper reviewed the book of the Jewish Chronicle and gave a slightly niche to here, niche to there review, he says a really weird thing, which is he says that I seem to be very enamoured of Christianity. And he completely misunderstands what is happening in the book with the bits about Christianity, because what I'm saying is that I think Christianity is more commercial than Judaism, more successful in terms of servicing the God desire. That doesn't mean I think it's better or that I like Christianity more. In fact, if anything, what I'm doing is breaking it down as I would break down a kind of capitalist sort of commercial film. I mean, what you're saying really is that the story of Christ ticks all the boxes for any kind of good commercial story with yeah. a hero and so on and so forth. Yeah, with a hero um, who's a sufferer, who's a good guy, who's very good early on, but then has a terrible trial and then sacrifices himself for the I mean, all that is unbelievably like a Hollywood film. And obviously, Mel Gibson knows that. And just the sheer idea of a man who is a god, by the way, that yeah. is brilliant because what is the most commercial thing in cinema superheroes yeah. and they are men and women who are gods you know we don't we don't have that we have some bit part players you know but god the main character is kind of formless fire or whatever yeah. he, you know there's no empathy there yeah. and in deconstructing that in a kind of you know literary way really i'm not saying therefore i love christianity i'm analyzing those two things mm. I was just thinking about Kaddish and Jewish survival and, and, and those things. And it, it brought to my mind Israel, yeah. which I'll talk about only briefly. because well, yeah. I know, No, it's yeah, fine. But also, much. you've got a book coming out about Israel. I, Let's I, be honest about it. I, I really, really wasn't going to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but what I wanted to ask you was, was this, because you, you, were, you were so inspired by Jewish survival when mm. it comes to Kaddish and, and what, all the feelings that gives you. I know what you're And it seems this. to me as if, <laughs> as if the... The most dramatic and extraordinary story of Jewish survival against the odds has got to be Israel. Certainly, in terms well, of, in terms of the establishment that. after 
after the Holocaust and, and those moments in the early days yeah. through, through those wars. Maybe. I mean, maybe that's true, although that's a really interesting thing. So why is it, by the, and this is not what I feel, by the way, before I'm accused of it, but why is it that uh, the guardians of sort of you know progressive morality have so turned against Israel? And there's lots of reasons. But one is Israel now seems to have the power. I would say you're right that when, when I was growing up, and certainly before I was growing up, Israel seemed to be this plucky little country that was sort of menaced on all sides and that somehow or other managed to survive against the odds. Now, certainly, whatever the truth of it, and the truth is a complex one, it's not that's not the narrative. The narrative is Israel's got loads of arms, loads of, you know, it's financed by America, blah, 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 and it's in control of that tiny patch of land. Now, there's masses of injustice in the way that that is viewed and in the way that people tip the scales of right and wrong so that Israel is much more the enemy than it should be. But I would agree that I don't think Israel feels like Jews surviving in the way that I'm talking about. The way that I'm talking about is very European and shtetly and basically a fiddler on the roof idea of Jews surviving, which is really against the odds. Jews being very vulnerable and somehow or other... I mean, I think what I quote, which I find very moving, is Simon Sharma talking about hearing the Shema as Jews are being exiled from Spain and loading their stuff on the boats and mm. going wherever. That's what I mean by Jewish survival. It's not yeah, quite but, the same as the IDF. That's my point. Right. I mean, I, I, there's a few point, a few things to say about that, which I, which I won't go into. But I mean, I, aside from the fact that, you know, as Dara Horn put it, people like dead Jews. Uh, no. not, not so much when they're not agreeing to die. Yeah, well, but no, let's, but you know let's, let's, let's reverse back to I absolutely accept that. Yeah. I absolutely accept that, that I myself am falling into a slight people-loving dead Jews trap. Although they're not dead. I mean, uh, I would make a slight distinction. Yeah, I am talking about survival, which is a different thing. But I would agree I'm looking at a vulnerable idea of Jews. But you're asking you're asking me about survival. And what I'm romantically and emotionally responsive to is Jews surviving against the odds. But on the, on that exact note, let's so if we go, I'm interested to know because you've talked to me about how you have no feeling for Israel, no instinctive uh, affection or bond, or as opposed to any other country in the world. And I'm wondering at what point that sense of relating to Jewish survival transitions into. I don't feel a bond for Israel. If we look at the early days of Israel, that was very much surviving against the odds. 1948, the war that threatened to wipe Israel and, and the Jews living there, many of whom were Holocaust survivors, off the, the face of the earth, and they survived against the odds mm. again in 1967, again in 1973. So those early days, that was not the story of a big superpower in the Middle East. Mm. That was a story of a miracle in some ways, a miracle of survival. Mm. Do you relate to that? I probably di- did. When I went to Habonim, I was very kind of like, uh, I'm going to say the word indoctrinated. That sounds harsh. I was very around the founding fathers, if you like, myth of Israel. Uh, I sung songs about it. I went to kibbutz. And I definitely felt it. And I probably do still have some romantic attachment to that ideal, a kind of weird kibbutz, socialist Zionist idea of Israel. Um, I don't know if it's absolutely true that I feel no attachment to Israel. I, you know, I I am more concerned about what happens there and to people there than I am, you know, other countries. But I also, you know, as you know, I feel it's very, very important that Jews, not Israeli Jews, are not responsible for Israel, and they are positioned as such by, you know, the left and, and the right, actually. Like Jews are constantly responsible for what happens in Israel. And I think that's a massive part of why Jews face anti-Semitism. So to say 
which turns out to be quite transgressive for some Jews. Actually, I don't feel particularly connected to Israel, and it's a foreign country. I do feel that. I absolutely do feel that it is a foreign country. I don't feel that Israel is my homeland uh, at all. I feel a connection with it, but it's not an incredibly deep... I'm, I wonder, you mentioned this, I think you write about it in your book, whether I feel like I feel more connected to America, for example, where I was born and where probably most of my Jewish heroes are from because I'm massively hero-worshipping of yeah. Groucho Marx and Woody Allen and Larry David and, and Mort Saal and all of them. Those are my kind of heroes, right? I don't have Israeli... I mean, David Ben-Gurion is not a hero of mine in the way that those guys are, right? Hmm. Um, and so... I think I don't know if I told you, but but when 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 we screened Jews Don't Count the the documentary, I think Nicole Lampert, who who works yeah. for you, like the first question was her being a bit unhappy about the Israel section of that, which in a way I don't know what she was unhappy about because all I was really doing was taking on Miriam Margolis, who does feel a very deep connection to yes. Israel, and who hates it as a result. <laughs> that was that, mainly what that bit was, right? But 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 the connection question is an interesting one because there's. There's a connection and a bond, and then there's responsibility for, which are two separate things. Well, that's and on complex, the, and even on the responsibility for section, a lot of the time it seems to me, as you know, that, that people say, um, don't hold me responsible for Israel's crimes. And that's a concession that Israel's done these awful crimes, which you could argue, and I would argue, is a huge ex- exaggeration deriving from anti-Semitism. And so in a sense saying, I'm, I'm not responsible for Israel's heinousness, concedes the heinousness. No, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I think that imagining that Jews are responsible for Israel in a way that no other minority is considered to be responsible for the country that is sort of nominally their heritage is a really weird one. I mean, it is, I've said many times this, but no one would say, you know, to a Muslim wanting to talk about Islamophobia in the UK, well, can you first talk about what's going on in Saudi Arabia? You know, it sort of feels really weird. Or to go to Officer Sanjeev Baskar and say, you know, I want you, you know, to talk about Modi. Well, it feels really weird to want, to want to do. Only Jews get this thing of like, you have to deal with what's going on in this country 400 miles away. And let me just finish what I was going to say about the screening, which is Nicole Lampart, who I like, by the way, but she raised an issue with that particular bit. And then Victoria Corrin, a Jew, came up to me afterwards. And then Victoria Corrin, who's a friend of mine, uh, but Jewish and came up to me and said that, you know, she was really like, she was going to say, but didn't particularly want to get involved in a fight, uh, like to thank me for being a very rare Jew who will say publicly, Israel is a foreign country. Now, I think that is true. That is how I feel. It's a foreign country with which I may feel some connection from time to time. But the idea that it isn't a foreign country, I think that is wrong for many Jews. And I think Jews sometimes do feel a bit browbeaten into thinking, no, no, it's our homeland or whatever. I mean, one thing I hear a lot, and (laughs) I did an event um, for the Florida Holocaust Museum. I get invited quite a lot, which is a really good bonus of having done this book to America to speak to big Jewish organizations. And I got invited, spent three days in Florida. It's fucking brilliant. Um, to speak to the Florida Holocaust Museum. Sounds terrible now, now that I've used <laughs> the word Holocaust. But anyway, um, and the guy who brought me over, uh, paid, I think, for me to come over, who is called, I want to say, Richard Rappaport. Anyway, it's called Rappaport. His name is Rappaport. He's a big, you know, macher and whatever. Everyone did enjoy that event apart from him. And the reason he didn't enjoy it was he was unhappy about me making this point about not in feeling intensely connected to Israel. And he said the thing a lot of Jews say, which is, what about if everything goes to shit again, Nazis come back, whatever, where are you going to go? And what I always think with that is, that's not a helpful way to think. If what we basically feel about anti-Semitism is, at the end of the day, we can't turn it around, we better have a place to run to. It's so not how other minorities think. 
Other minorities think we will turn this round. Other fighters for other minorities, we will turn this round, we will change attitudes. They do not think, oh, we probably won't, so in the end we'd better hide in the one place that will look after us. Now, I'm not saying I don't understand why people think that, but I just think it's so, I get it so much, but what would you do? Where will you go? If I just think like that's not a good way to think about anti-Semitism, about the racism that we face. I think that the, the the sort of backdrops to all of this is 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 interesting. It's and again, it's it's in your book. There's a bit where you talk about the the shift of antisemitism from medieval antisemitism that yeah. was religious based as the as the Christ killer and so forth yeah. to racial antisemitism. Yeah. I mean, I, objectively, historically, that happened in the 19th century with yes. the invention of the word antisemitism in Germany. Yes, and it it brought to mind Rabbi Sachs's famous speech where he talks about the three stages of antisemitism. Which I don't were, know this. Okay, so, so the first was the medieval stage, as you say, the religious one. Then there was the racial stage of the 20th century, Nazis and so on and so forth. And the, the one that superseded those two is hating the Jews for their nation state. Right, okay. And I think a lot of people feel that that new form of, uh, of, of hatred of Israel um, is, the, is the new iteration of antisemitism. And so I think when... People, so I mean, that's really what's informing people's questioning of you. Yeah, but I think there is a slight issue there. I mean, I you know, I understand why people say that, and I sort of agree with Dara Horn and agree to some extent with Rabbi Sachs that there is, you know, we've talked about it, a sort of like fetishization of of the vulnerable Jew, which Israel contradicts, and that makes people somehow angry because Jews should be vulnerable or whatever. Otherwise, we don't accept them. But there's a thing that I think people miss, which is. I do feel not deeply, it's genuine, genuine truth. I would describe myself as kind of a non-Zionist. I don't feel deeply connected to it. I don't think much about the deep importance of there being a Jewish homeland. But I have turned the volume up on it because it completely undermines the constant reflex attitude of progressives towards Jews and anti-Semitism. And I, and, so I feel it, but it is also an intellectual tactic. Right? But, yeah, but, that, no, but it's important here mm. because that is not, I don't think, a way of not acknowledging whatever you're, you feel is important to acknowledge about Israel. It flushes out something and it flushes out the fact that they rely very heavily on con- condemning Israel to not have the proper conversations they need to have about anti-Semitism. So in that sense, it's quite a tortuous route. I would say I'm servicing Israel in a way, because I'm saying keep Israel out of this conversation and then see where we are when you talk about anti-Semitism. Let's see what you've got if you remove Israel from the conversation. And they don't have much. I think that's useful for Israel. You famously wrote, as I recall it in Jews Don't Count, and I read it again recently, I, I, I may be wrong, you wrote fuck Israel. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I mean, this is. A, I think you've accused me of this before. And I, I do not say that. Um, I say my regular mantra, I haven't said it for a while, actually, but when I used to get more engaged in on Twitter with twats, uh, was to use the phrase stupid fucking Israel. Don't talk to me about stupid fucking Israel. And by that, I don't mean, you know, fuck Israel does mean, I suppose, if you want to mean I like the country should go to shit or whatever. It doesn't mean that. Stupid fucking Israel is sort of a comment about the whole conversation. It's what everyone's saying. I wouldn't say it's particularly onside either, but it's a weary exaltation about 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The minute that I'm talking about anti-Semitism, you brought up stupid fucking Israel. And really, I mean, yes, the conversation that surrounds it and how tiresome it is. I don't mean particularly the country at all. I just mean your your use of it and then some Jews' use of it when they argue with you and blah, blah, blah. And it's my way of saying, can we have this conversation, which in my opinion is about anti-Semitism, without always bringing that up, without making everything about Israel. But but surely you can it's no surprise if you if you use language like stupid fucking Israel that you wind up the Israelis. Well, maybe, yeah. Some Israelis <laughs> have been wound up and some Israelis have wound up when the show went out in Israel. They were cross about it. I got some very <laughs> aggressive sabras getting very angry with me on, on Instagram mainly. Uh but you know, what can you do? Um, I mean I did get into trouble I mean, this is another thing which we haven't got time to discuss for saying stupid fucking frummers. Right. And that was a diss of Orthodox Jews because it was right. specifically about the right. fact that, um, Do you want to apologise for that now? Um, well, I've, I've done a whole conversation <laughs> right, okay, at JW3 right. with right. Um, Yehudis. Yehudis Fletcher because yeah. um, she got in touch with me about it and right. we talked about it and I accepted a lot of her points about it. But it was very specifically about the fact that they were creating COVID hotspots right. by refusing to go with government Because you're quite affectionate towards the ultra thoughts in your book. You know, I mean, you say that you don't... The whole point about it was... I am angry that they're doing this. I mean, if you, you know, that was me saying not in my name. I don't normally mm. bother to do that. But I was, I did see quite a lot of anti-Semitism building up around the fact that there were uh, Orthodox communities in Stamford Hill that were spreading COVID because they yeah. refused to not have minions yeah. uh, and whatever, you know, they live, you know, tend to be in very cramped environments or whatever. And like at one point, I believe Stamford Hill was one of the highest COVID hotspots in the world. Mm. And I did say uh, stupid fucking us about that. And in a way, the word frummers was meant to signal something, which is, I'm Jewish. Yeah. And so I can say, oh, sorry, I'm Jewish. And so I can say this about sort of my own community. I'm obviously not a member of the Orthodox community. But some people got upset about it. And I had a long conversation with Yehudis Fletcher. And what Yehudis explained to me, which I probably hadn't seen, was how difficult it is living in that community and how there is lots of reasons in which, you know, for poverty and ill-education and all sorts of things. And anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism, of course. They're they're at the sharp end of that. Well, one of the... I do say this a lot, uh, which is people need to understand how vulnerable the Orthodox community is. And there's a particular reason for that, which, again, idiots don't quite understand. Because I think idiots think, again, that the Orthodox community get attacked because anti-Semitism is about religion. And it's not. They are the visible Jews. They are the visible Jews. That's why they get attacked, not because they are praying in a certain way or because they believe certain things about pork or whatever. They're just, it's clearer that they're a Jew than you're a Jew, for example. Certainly you, you could easily be a bloody goy. I'm, I'm half goy, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, as you know. I know. So, so, yeah. yeah. You're, I mean, I don't think you're ridiculously goyish. I think no, I might no, know, but my no. jadar's a bit wavering. Right? Yeah, no. yeah. Well, that's good. I, I think I, I'll, I'll take that. For fuck's sake. There are two words. There's a goy word and there's a goy name. And <laughs> I a, said this this morning, Jewish. by the way, which really made my wife laugh. Uh, and maybe I shouldn't say it, but I was looking, Jonathan Greenblatt gave me his book. Yeah. And I said, you know, I like the fact that he's stuck with a proper Jewish name, but Jewish names are quite funny. With names like Greenblatt. And I said, Jewish names sound a bit like a pudding falling on the floor. That really, really made her laugh. Yeah, and she, of course, is not Jewish, so shouldn't do that. If Badil was a pudding, what pudding would it be? Uh, I think Lokshan, obviously. <laughs> Sometimes I can't help but feel, you know, Jews don't count was, it wasn't is so powerful in combating anti-Semitism. I can't help but feel that what if you also took on 
the anti-Semitism that masquerades as anti-Zionism. Well, How much that. powerful? You're, <laughs> you're doing that. You could help. Uh, well, no, I, well I, I am helping a bit. I mean, as you may or may not know, in the um, American edition, which is kind of a second edition, which some people here are pissed off about because they, look, I bought it, I'm going to buy it again just because you've added a chapter. I have added a chapter, which was written at the time of whichever excursion into Gaza it was. In, um, there was a, you know, in 2020 or 2021, I can't remember. Um, there were massive, yeah. massive demonstrations. And there was a particular demonstration in Hyde Park where two things happened. One is there was a placard that said, um, it had a picture of Jesus on it. He, here we are talking about him again. And it, it's, he's on the cross and it says, don't let them do it again. And in that edition of the book, I say, what is them in that? It's clearly an ancient trope. And if you want to talk about anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism, that's an obvious example because the state of Israel did not exist in AD 33 and they were not cheering for Team Barabbas, right? And Benjamin Netanyahu was nowhere to be seen. It's clearly using Jews. And a similar example at the same rally, Tariq Ali said, end the occupation and anti-Semitism will disappear. Well, as we know, there was quite a big international anti-Semitic incident three years before the State of Israel was formed. So I would absolutely be on board and would keep mentioning, and I do with the Roger Waters thing, mentioning ways in which people are using anti-Zionism, but within, sorry, people are talking about anti-Zionism, but using, in my opinion, very ancient and very obvious anti-Semitic tropes. And in the work that I guess I do about anti-Semitism, I'm very happy to say that this is going on. What I'm not particularly happy to do, and I think would not personally be useful in what I do is sort of trying to defend the state of Israel itself from this thing they've done or that thing they've done, which is what just tends to lead to a terrible, I think, shouting match, which is not useful. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it, but if someone, if you want to say, you know, well, actually, you know, those rockets were fired first and blah, 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 whatever it is, I don't know. That's not a conversation I think it's useful for me to have. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, it feels to me as if there's a big difference between defending everything Israel has ever done and calling out the hatred, the anti-Semitism that is, attra- that is directed towards Israel, which I call Israelophobia. Yeah, you know? I, don't compl- I don't disagree with that, really. I think we're sort of arguing a little bit angels on a pin here. And also, if I had really, really gone into Israel, you wouldn't have been able to write your book. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Which is going to be called Israelophobia. Yeah. Uh, David, thank you for coming in. My pleasure, Jay. Did you enjoy the sushi? Uh, I did enjoy the sushi. And I noticed there's also some dips over there. So I, dips. I might eat them before I go. You'll just have me sitting around in your office for hours. <laughs> when you're munching away. Yeah. Um, we traditionally end by asking if oh, you yeah. have a Kvetch of the week. Do yeah. you have a uh, something to get off your off your chest? Yeah, let me think. Do I have a kvetch of the week? Well, yes. Okay, it's actually not necessarily the, this week. It's one of all weeks. Um, but uh, one thing about me is I'm a man of words, and I can't read anymore because my eyes have got bad. I mean, they're, they're fine actually for seeing you. This distance is fine, but anything up close, I can't read anymore. Uh, and whenever I talk about this, people say you should get reading glasses, but. I have got about 17 pairs of reading glasses. I never know where they fucking are. So then people say, wear them around your neck. And I think like, really? I'm going to look like Jenny Murray, right? I'm not doing that. <laughs> so that's my vet for the week. Oh, well, I hope Jenny Murray isn't listening is all I can say. Um, you can get your eyes lasered. No, that's part of my Kvetch. Right. So if you Google presbyopia, which is what that is, right. 
it's very, very weird about that particular problem. Okay. If you've got long-sightedness or, or very straightforward short-sightedness, you can get your eyes lasered. It always says things like, this might help, but it might not, might make it worse. So like, okay, I'm not doing it. It's my eyes. I think, I think the Jewishness of this conclusion makes up for the baconness of the opening. It's so Jewish. And <laughs> by the way, if there are any Jewish optometrists listening who can help, <laughs> do get in touch. Right in. <laughs> Thank you very much. Indeed. My pleasure. You've been listening to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast, sponsored by the Athena Advisors, with me, Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle. If you haven't subscribed, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.